Okay, live on Facebook. Okay, we're live on Facebook and recording. So we're gonna get started because I'm very much about starting things on time, changing the paradigm in the, in the devotee culture. <laughs> <laughs> so um, today um, we have with us Gurnishta, and I'm really excited to have him as our, um, as our modern day sage. Um, we're doing this series, um, The Beauty and Messiness of the Sadhaka's Journey, um, interviews with modern day sages. And I want to read a little bio just to start with, um, just give you a, a little history of Gurnishta's life. So um, Gurnishta was born into an atheistic upper middle class family in central Finland in the late 70s. Um, religion had absolutely no part in his family, but from early on, <clears throat> questions about the meaning of life tormented him. On his 18th birthday, he found Srila Prabhupada's books and became a devotee. And then six years later, he met Swami Tripurari in Finland and knew immediately that he had found his guru. So Gurunishta got Initiated in 2004, he moved to Odaria in January of 2005. Um, he helped build the Odaria temple and pioneered Madhavan during the first wave of its development. He managed Odaria off and on <clears throat> after more brahmacharis joined around 2007, and he was involved in training up the new monastics. After being a monk for close to seven years, he got married to Swami's close disciple, Vrindaranya, in 2011. And after moving out and returning to Odarya several times to help out with the management, Vrindaranya and Guru Nishta sold their home in Santa Cruz Mountains and bought half of Odarya in 2018. They continue to live and serve at Odarya to this day working full-time for Swami's Darshan Press publishing house and doing other service that, services that the ashram requires. Some of the things that Guru Nishtra enjoys doing are singing bhajans, cooking milk sweets for Shushi Gornichananda, creative writing and drawing devotional comics for the Harmonist online magazine. Prompted by his Guru Maharaj's request, his latest project is studying the Gaudiya scriptures and giving classes on them. So that's great. So Gurunishta has told me that he has a lot to say. So I'm gonna kind of, <laughs> I'm gonna be quiet today. I'm not gonna make so, so many comments and I'm gonna um, just let him jump into it. Um, we are kind of looking at the hero's journey, The um, the Sadika's journey compared to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And um, I know you're well, uh, well aware of that. So the first 
aspect would be to kind of what the call or the, and your departure from the world. And then the second would be your initiation into the into a new world and your teachers and guides and and mantras and all the things that empowered you to make progress in your spiritual journey. And then um, the return, which many of us may not actually have a complete understanding of that yet because we're still in progress. So, um, but but there's we are able to share a lot of what we've we've garnered over the, the last some years. So there is some of that. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Gurnishta, and you can start with your departure and what was the call and how did it come? Right. Thank you for that. And pronouns to all the devotees here. And uh, Kishore always, I mean, not Kishore, um, Frigo always says that if you feel comfortable, if you could turn on the video, that'd be really nice because then I feel like I'm talking to you directly. That'll make me perhaps more inspired to say things that would be not said otherwise. And so I would like to start with uh, saying that my Sadhaka story is gonna explode a lot of these like common mythical ideas about what spiritual life is and is supposed to be. And um, it there's been so many obstacles and a lot of struggle and, and hardship. And there's this kind of persistent idea in the West I would say, especially in the new age circles, that, that spiritual life is supposed to be easy. And if you think about the book, The Secret, for example, the idea is that the more spiritual you are, the more there's gonna be money and influence and women and men and beautiful cars coming your way and everything's gonna be just, you know, rainbows and unicorns. But really the, the fact is it's quite the opposite. If you really try to surrender, at least my experience has been that the more you try to surrender, the harder and the messier things are going to get. And because you go against the, the material stream. And so uh, I heard that Goring Priya was thinking about uh, putting together this book of like compiling all the parts from the Bhagavatam that where the Sadhakas or devotees struggle. And I thought that was a great idea because um, I think it's really important to emphasize that there will be struggle. Like don't expect spiritual life to be easy because it's not gonna be easy. And like Krishna is gonna test us a lot. And the more we try to leave behind our material nature and material conditioning, the more it's gonna sort of fight back. And so, so I, I've certainly seen that in my life. And then if you think about like Prabhupada, for example, or what to speak of like our Guru Maharaj, he's had so many obstacles ever, ever since he left ISKCON. It was one obstacle after another, and he just keeps pushing through. And that's really the beauty of like surrender is like you don't judge things by what's pleasant and what's unpleasant, but you judge them by what, how you can surrender more and how you can go forward towards Krishna, no matter how hard it is. And that being said, I, I was thinking I should probably start my, my journey with talking a little bit about my uh, childhood, my background. So like Archon should have mentioned in that bio, I was born into a well-to-do family and my parents were um, both college educated and they very much had this mindset of like, um, of like science and well they they had been communists in, when they were in 
college. So that really kind of like informed a lot of their political views, especially their views about religion. And so religion was not only like a neutral thing or something they didn't think about, but it was actually something that they actively resisted and really hated when it came down to it. And so that was the environment that I was born into. And of course I took it like a sponge like kids do, you know, their environment. And I just went along with that. Uh, but the thing was that I was not like a normal kid. I, I started having these like existential crises when I was five years old. I remember my mom was reading me this book by this awesome Swedish author called Astrid Lindgren. And she has this one book called uh, Brothers Lionheart that's basically all about reincarnation in what not, well, it's a you know, fantasy story, but really the framework is like reincarnation. These two brothers, they keep dying and then they go to this spe special like uh, fantasy realm and then they die again and they go to the next realm. And I was like five years old and my mom was reading that book to me in the evenings. And I like got like, wow, like this is true. Like we're just gonna keep going on and on forever like this. And I was just crying like night after night. I was like, I can't be stuck in this thing. And, and I knew somehow that that sounded like that was how the world functioned. But of course my parents had absolutely no, they couldn't console me in any way because they were atheists and they, they had nothing to say to it. And they were like, no, it's just a story. I'm like, no, that's not just a story. <laughs> it's real life for you. And so from then on, I, I just always felt like life was not working. Like there's something I hadn't figured out about life and it was not working out. Like there's something that was not functioning properly. And I, then I, when I became a teenager, I started like looking for answers. I started reading these like existential philosophers like Nietzsche and Camus. And then I got into anarchism. I got into punk rock. I got into all this like alternative youth culture because I felt like maybe they had some better answers because they were going against the mainstream that I felt all along that never really worked for me. But it didn't really like, I didn't get these like good solid answers. It was like, a little bit you know some good idea here some good idea idea there but it didn't feel like it was this whole package and this clear clear explanation of how things actually were and why it wasn't working for me and so i i kept doing the i joined bands since i was i was 12 that was kind of the whole thing that we did you know we we were like the punks of the excuse me the local uh, town and then we'd form different bands and play and do songs write songs about the you know all the bad things in the world and like try to kind of sort it out by expressing it through music I guess that's what we were doing and then but the um the kind of like the existential anxiety just kept amping up I I found some Buddhist text and then I went from anarchism and all that like atheistic stuff to like alternative spirituality so there's like buddhism shamanism and like carlos castaneda and i got something out of it but it didn't really like fully like work for me either and then i remember just before i turned 18 i it really peaked for me the whole existential like crisis big time and i was like praying to my journal i was like just where are you god like wh why are you playing these games with me like why can't you just show me i was just really like trying to as sincerely as I could say, like, I need help. And why are you not helping me? And then, you know, nothing seemed to happen. I was like, oh, oh, well, I kind of forgot about it a little bit. 
and then just a week after that i was riding my bike to uh to home from my girlfriend's place and i stopped by the grocery store and just when i pulled up to the grocery store this like extremely round-faced happy-looking chubby guy looked like the buddha you know the laughing buddha from for the chinese buddha he came up to me with this huge smile on his face and he didn't say anything, but he grabbed the handlebar of my bike. And I was like, what the hell's the matter with this guy? Like in Finland, especially, you just don't do that kind of thing. Like Finnish people, social distancing has nothing to do with the pandemic in Finland. Everybody's just like staying away from others. So I was like, what is this guy doing? But he had this like aura about him. I was like, I liked him at the same time. It was a weird feeling. And so then he had a book in the other hand and he like kind of hold it, held it up and was like, are you interested in yoga? <laughs> and I, I said, yeah, actually I am because I'd been reading some stuff about yoga as well. And he was really surprised because, you know, central Finland, like small town Finland, you don't actually a lot of times get that response. So then he was like, oh, really? I think you'd really like this book. And he got all amped up and his smiles just went higher and higher. And, and uh so then I started coming up with excuses. He said, I'm a monk from the Helsinki temple. And I, oh, okay, interesting, you know, but I wasn't really interested in it. So I, he was trying to really like sell the book to me and I came up with excuses like, oh, I don't have any money, although I was just about to go to the grocery store. And oh, I don't have any money on me. And then somehow it came out that he, that I knew this guy, Yanni, who I just had started to play in a band with, who was into shelter and he was uh, kind of like on and off devotee. And, uh, so he found out about that and he was so happy. He was like, oh, you can pay through him. No problem. You don't have to pay now. And to be honest with you, I still haven't paid for the book. So I should probably go to the Helsinki temple and give him $5 or something next time I go to Finland. So anyway, so he gave me the book and, and I took it and I was like, yeah, I'm never going to read this. You know, I, the devotee who played in my band, he'd taken us to the Helsinki temple once when we went to record this demo in Helsinki. And I, we were like, not impressed. The rest of us, we were just like, these like teenage punks just making fun of him and all the quirks of the devotees and all the imported you know funny cultural quirks and stuff and so i i kind of knew about the devotees and i i didn't feel like they had anything to give me which is so funny i was so arrogant like that but so i just like went home and i threw the book in some random pile of some stuff you know how you know teenage boys rooms they are they are what they are and so I assumed I'd never see the book again. But then on my 18th birthday, I was like lying in my bed, completely bored out of my mind. I just like reached out my hand like this, kind of like blindly to whatever first thing hit my hand. And it was the book. And it was this book of uh, transcribed uh, morning walks of Prabhupada when he used to walk in the, um, uh, in uh, Los Angeles on the beach and give these talks. And the book was called The Science of Life. And it was all about um, how materialistic science is, is completely unable to explain what life is actually about and how they, you know, the stuff that Prabhupada would talk a lot about. And so I started reading it slowly. I wasn't catching that much of it at first, but then he started talking about the nature of consciousness. And I had some kind of like Jan Samaskar from, from probably from my previous lives. It was kind of coming out before I become a devotee. And so that kind of talk about consciousness and matter and the difference of, between consciousness and matter, it really caught my attention. And so I started like getting more into the book. And the more I read, I just like all of a sudden like was gorging on the book. It was this intense feeling of like, this is the best stuff I've ever 
read this like this is what i've been looking for and the more i read i was like oh my god like this this person likes it's like practically speaking in my words that i you know how guru much says sometimes how like the guru says things that you always felt but you can't put to words that was my experience with Prabhupada. and then finally i just he started talking about krishna and he made the connection between consciousness and then that there's this like the conglomerate of consciousness like the the total consciousness that's krishna and there's a way to connect with that consciousness and it just absolutely blew my mind and like tears started like flowing to my eyes i was just like so it was this the feeling of relief i'd never felt that kind of relief like the whole my whole life up until my 18th birthday i'd felt like nothing made sense and then all of a sudden i get this book that's like everything about it is makes perfect sense it was this like feeling of like every single thing falling in place and all these connections like shooting out from me that like everything was in order like all of a sudden and i just like started writing my to my journal i was like saying like oh my god like you actually responded like i can't believe you actually got back to me <laughs> yeah, this connection is working you know and and i just i could hardly write because i my tears were just like pouring out of my eyes and and so i kept reading and i was just in this completely altered state of mind i was feeling like this intense bliss and relief and like a whole week after that i was in this altered state of mind and and it felt like what the actual experience of it for me was that i was like sitting in the audience and looking watching at this like puppet show of material existence playing in front of my eyes and i felt completely detached from it it was just kind of humorous and like it just didn't touch me that's what i and so in my like newcomers you know my utsahamai i thought okay i'm just gonna this is gonna like the way i'm gonna live the rest of my life and i'm just gonna be beamed up to golok vrindavan by the end of this life and didn't quite work out like that and of course what happens is like the you get that you know when you reconnect with your old bhakti samskars you get that like punch in the face like it's amazing and you think that's going to be it but then your material conditioning after that initial thing starts coming back and then you come down from it and you oh yeah okay here we're, that's where i'm actually at and unfortunately that's what happened to me and so i was back you know but at least it was such a different experience still after that because i knew that there was a structure and there was a that life actually made sense and, and so i came back from that amazing week-long trip but at least i knew that that life was that it made sense and that i had a way of like connecting with that that conglomerate that like whatever you would call it the over consciousness that's called krishna and i had a name for it i had a like a sadhana for it i started chanting and um I got I, I wanted to become a monk because I figured that you know I wanted to take it all away. But the thing was I I did not feel comfortable with um, with the Helsinki Iskon temple. They were even in the, for the nineties scale they were extremely fanatical. So it says something about how fanatical they were. And so like every time I went there they tried to make me join and basically hit the street with a stack of books. And I just, I couldn't relate to that. I, I didn't relate to that kind of like uber evangelical approach. And so I kept my distance. I had connections with the monks, but I, I always kept my distance because I didn't want to be pulled into that kind of like fanatical, a little like cultish thing. 
And uh, so instead, I just kind of continued my my band stuff, but I kept a, a pretty strict sadhana by myself. Like I, I had no association, but I kept chanting mostly 16 rounds a day, and I was reading every day. It was, I just really loved chanting and and studying philosophy. And the monks would always come. They would sometimes visit my hometown. And they'd be like. But you're all alone. Like, what are you doing here? Like, and uh, I said, well, I'm just doing my sadhana. They're like, they were like really surprised that I kept my a strict sadhana without any association because I guess it wasn't that normal. You know, they, it wasn't their experience. But it was just for me. It was just like I didn't do it to. Um, I just did it because I really, really enjoyed it. For me, it was like the lifeline that I had to keep doing because. Otherwise, nothing really had any meaning. That's how I felt. But then because I couldn't surrender, I, because I couldn't become a monk. So then I kept doing the band stuff on the side. And I materially, I couldn't like either. I, I, I was kind of like stalling my material life because I didn't want to get more entangled. So I was in this total like catch 22. Like I couldn't surrender, but I didn't want to get more entangled either. And so, so I kind of kept doing the band thing and just being completely stalled in my life. And then I started this one band called On the Solid Rock that was basically my, my pro, like personal project at first. And it's funny because now that I look back to the lyrics, almost every single lyric of that band was kind of like praying to be able to surrender. There's this one song, for example, called the, it's called Paralyzed on the Path to Freedom. And one of the lines is that it says that I envy those people who accidentally burn down their homes. <laughs> so like, I was kind of like praying for this disaster that would like, like burn my home or like this flood that would just like throw me in some other place that I couldn't go back to my material life anymore. But I, I couldn't like actually do that to surrender. And I didn't know who to surrender to because I hadn't found my guru. And so I just kept stalling and stalling, stalling. But then finally, when I was 23, so I did that for five years. And then finally, when I was 23, I decided, well, I guess I have to, you know, it's not looking like I'm going to be able to surrender in this life. So I guess I better get going. And then I, uh, Kamalaksha got me to his graphic design art school through the back door. And that's when I found my material calling. Like I was, I became like, overnight like an art fanatic it just hit me so intensely I just completely dove into it I kept doing my sadhana but I kind of like religion kind of became my no art became my religion and then religion became my hobby and and so that's what I did then I I mean I hung out every single night at Kamalaksha and Krishangi's place and we would just like play Chinese board, board games and talk about art all night. And they would cook like this amazing Indian prasadam and we'd eat and just like get, get these crazy art, art ideas and do some weird little trips. And you know how those guys are like, there's never a dull moment, but then that's what it was like. We just all out, just like avant-garde, you know, publishing house craziness. And uh, that was uh, materially speaking, probably the happiest time of my life. And, but what had happened was the very first semester when I went to that school, Kamalaksha was not there for the two first weeks because him and Krishangi were in California on their honeymoon. And so they came back and then they were like, you know what, we got initiated. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> it was the craziest thing for me because I always thought they were like me, like they, Krishna consciousness, 
Krishna consciousness was like the basis of their life, but they were not going to go that far in this life as to surrender and go for the, you know, go for that more serious thing. And I was really surprised. And I was like, and then they explained how it happened. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I'd actually heard about Triple Rari Maharaj at that point because I was uh, subscribed to his Sangha newsletter. But for some reason, the Sangha newsletter never really caught my my faith. Like I kept reading it, but it was a little too like maybe academic or something for me, a little too theoretical. It was like beyond my understanding. So I couldn't really connect with it. And so, so I was like, oh, that's cool. You guys have a guru. But I was like, totally like not interested. I didn't look into Guru Maharaj or anything back then. I was like, okay, cool. But then what happened was um, they invited him to their home. So I'd been in the school for eight months at that point. Gung-ho art crazy guy. I mean, absolutely just the total art freak. And so then... I heard, okay, you know, Tupperware Maharaj is going to come visit their home. And I, I wasn't even interested in going. I, I was kind of like, I'd given up on the idea of finding a guru. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to go since I'm hanging out there every night anyway. So anyway, I guess there's going to be a guru as an extra perk or something. But I remember I was really nervous that morning. I think it was more in the morning when then Guru Maharaj and Vrindaranya and one other brahmachari had arrived. And I remember knocking on their door. And uh, um, Krishangi opened the door and I like stepped into their hall. And the way their house is that is that like when you when you're standing in the hall, there's one uh, door on the left that's to the uh, living room and another door to the kitchen on the right. And so I saw Guru Maharaj's feet kind of sticking out from outside of the frame of the door in the living room. And I saw some people, some like monks sitting on the floor. And I quickly slinked to the kitchen. I was hoping they wouldn't see me. I was like, yeah, man, I'm not, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to like uh, see them basically. And, and Kamalaksha was there in the kitchen, staring a pot. And he's, he whispered, he's like, go, go say hi to the guests. I, I was saying like, no, no, I, I don't feel like going. You know, when Kamalaksha gets upset, his voice goes falsetto. He, so he started going like, come on, don't be such a baby. Come on. <laughs> and he's like pushing me. There's another door between the kitchen and the living room. And so he pushed me from my arm through the door to the living room. And of course, I had no idea back then. But that moment was stepping over that threshold from the kitchen to the living room. It was like this like quantum collapse. The, the kitchen represented like everything that was my past life. The art, the graphic design, hanging out with K&K and just having a blast all the time. And then I stepped into the room that didn't only have Guru Maharaj sitting in this awesome red uh, armchair in the corner, but Vrindarani was sitting on the floor as well. And so like that was like the point of no return. That was the like decisive fork in my life that changed everything. And so I sat down and paid a basis to Guru Maharaj and tried to have some small talk, which is like the worst thing for Finns. And I was terrible at it. But anyway, Guru Maharaj was very, you know, very, very nice with me and asked some questions and stuff. And then as we were talking, a bunch of other people from around Western Europe showed up and um, Guru Maharaj started talking. And I, was, I had all of my guards up, like there was a big wall there between me and him that I, I put up immediately when I stepped into that room. But I noticed like right away that he was very different than the other gurus I'd met. It's just the way he is, like the way he looks at the philosophy and like he has this very, he was uh, apparently had an, 
was suffering from a really bad jet lag. But I was looking at him, I was like, wow, he's like so calm. Like he's speaking so calmly and slowly. But it was actually jet lag. But anyway, that made an impression on me. And uh, so I was like, oh, he's, this uh, person is definitely different than the other gurus. And I was impressed, but I was still totally like standoffish. And so the next day I come back with my, my discrimination and I was like studying his every movement I was like looking at his hand gestures I was like trying to find some kind of a reason why I shouldn't trust him but I like I couldn't come up with anything and then there was this amazing like decisive moment on the third day when it felt it seriously was like this one moment where it felt like this this like veil just like dropped like my all of my uh apprehensions just dropped off all of a sudden and I again started like welling up. I was like, because I had that same experience, the exact same feeling I had when Prabhupada's books started hitting me like hardcore. I was like, oh my God, like this person is my guru. And like, because I'd had for years, I'd been thinking that I'm never going to get initiated. It was like such a shock to be sitting with him. And then all of a sudden realize this person is my guru. Like I had zero doubt about it all of a sudden that he, this is it. And the super cool thing about it was that I found out later on that Gurumach was on so many of those walks that were transcribed into that first book that I had. So the way it kind of worked was that Gurumach was there. He was like receiving the Shabda Brahman from Prabhupada. And then decades later, he came to me and basically brought that um, to me. And uh, it was really... Uh, an intense experience. And um, so then from then on, he stayed for six days or something. And uh, um, I was completely blown away. By the end of it, I was just completely sold. I was like, okay, where do I sign up? And um, um, he left, he went back to California and I just started, I started counting days for the next time he would come. And the art scene and the, the bands and stuff, they really just kind of went in the background. And I just started waiting to, for him to come back. And he actually came back just a couple of days after, and a couple of months after, uh, Krishan and Kamal actually decided to do this, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, like a retreat at this island that Kamalaksha's parents had. And so Gurumach came and it was, I'm just amazing, like a whole week of constant like programs and classes and prashadam and hanging out with devotees. It was just like, like so amazing. And so then Gurumach called me to meet me privately. And so he asked me like, uh, have you ever thought about being a monk? And I said, yes, actually I have. And I was like, oh my God, have I ever thought about being a monk? And he was like really surprised because I still was sort of in a relationship that I had been in for a long time. And, um, And he said, well, would you like to live with me in Audari? And I was like, hell yeah. I mean, I didn't say it like that, but I said like, sure, yeah, that'd be great. And, uh, and that's what really like, that was it. And uh, then he initiated me um, a couple of days after there was this, uh, Brigu made this beautiful fire, Yagya. And uh, there were th two other devotees. We all got initiated, first initiation. And he gave me the name Guru Nishta and uh, uh, he wanted me to come to Audaria right away, but I was like, nah, I better wrap things up first. Um, and so 
I, I told him I'd come in January, which was a terrible idea, but I had no idea that California winters can be worse than Finnish winters in some way. So I was like, yeah, I'll just come in, in January. And so then I started prepping to actually become a monk and uh, I was just totally on fire. Like I, all the band stuff and my relationship and, and the art career and being a graphic designer, I was like, whatever, you know, I, I was just ready to go. But then Gromach, he came back. I, that, I guess that's why I wanted to leave in January because I knew he would be coming back to Finland for the New Year's. He came for another week again by himself. And so I, I would fly back with him to California when he left. And um, I'd been the whole six months, I'd been just, just totally on fire. But then when he came, it all of a sudden hit me what I was about to do. Basically that I was about to burn down my material life and and the whole week he was there i felt like somebody was like strangling me i i could not get into that devotional mood again that had blown me away so hard before and i was just my heart was beating i was sweating it was like a, like a week-long panic attack basically and then so then after the week we're sitting on the plane in at the helsinki vanta airport and i'm just like like dying of anxiety it was like the most intense anxiety i've ever felt it really felt like i was dying like and that's i knew that that it actually was what was happening and materially speaking i was about to kill myself and so the plane took off and i <laughs> i was i never i normally never sleep in planes because uh, i'm a light sleeper and but it was the anxiety levels were so intense that it knocked me out i just i absolutely blanked out like as if i had been like um put down by or put out by like before surgery or something and then gromach was sitting like in the um window seat and i was next to him and so i was completely knocked out and then i woke up and gromach was gone and i freaked out like i was like what happened what happened i must have been out for an hour or two or something and then I turn around and see behind the plane, he's like walking towards me. He's kind of has this like sly grin on his face. And he came to me and I was like, what happened? And he was like, oh, I, I tried waking you up. All right. But you were like, I called your name. I was like shaking you, but you wouldn't budge. So I had to jump over you. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> so he had to jump over me in his robes in a full plane. And I was like, well, that was a great start for my monastic life right there. And uh, so that was that's how it started for me a full-blown panic and my guru jumping over me because i he couldn't wake me up and uh, then when we got to san francisco it all kind of evaporated because it, the the difference between you know january finland in january and san francisco was just like amazing everything was flush and green and beautiful and so uh, Rindrana came to pick us up and we were driving through San Francisco and I was like going like an owl. My head was just like spinning around. It's like a different world. And like, I forgot about all the anxiety because it was so incredible. And then I remember specifically, we were driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, the huge red towers and the whole San Francisco Bay opening on the right and the Alcatraz there and million people out like jogging and whatnot. And I all of a sudden I realized like, I'm actually escaping my karma here. Like I'm, I'm breaking out of the prison of my material life. And like these two people had come out, come and like saved me <laughs> from the prison of material life. And we were like in a getaway car and I was like 
cruising away and kind of like in hiding with them. And I had this like intense like burst of joy. Like, I can't believe it. Like I'm finally like escaping my karma here. And it was just the best feeling. I felt like sticking my head out of the window and just like whooping all the way to Audaria or something. But, you know, I was a very serious monk, so I couldn't do that, of course. So then we got to Audaria. And then of course, you know, the anxiety kicked in again. I was like, what am I doing here? I'm, you know, in the middle of the woods with four people, I don't really actually know. It was, well, actually three people because it was Guru March, Brindarania and Chidahari at that time. And it started creeping up again, you know, that like, you know, the choke hold on my throat. And uh, then uh, it's just, I mean, the natural setting, if you've been to Audaria, it's absolutely stunning. So at, it's, not, it's stunning. So at first I was like extremely impressed by it. And I was just so happy to be here. But then it started like by the evening, by the, by, yeah, by the evening, I was just like freaking out again. And then from there on, it kind of really started hitting me, what I had done and everything I'd left behind, like everything was kind of happening to me. The band I had started, started gaining momentum we were invited to play in sweden with this like legendary hardcore band called agnostic front and other invites were coming we had just put out a record that was extremely well received we had some kind of like a small cult following in finland of these like fanatical fans and my graphic design studies were going extremely well i was like you know one of the best students in class and stuff and i just i that i i think that was another one of the christmas tests like i was kind of right at like about to break through with my material life and that's when Groma showed up and I, I i threw it out but when you're actually like when that happens when you finally make that break and you try to surrender that's when you actually only find out how attached you are to things because you can't know it when you're in the world you seem like you're a pretty spiritual guy because everybody else is a total materialist around you and then you think you're doing great, but then when you, you're in the environment where the real devotees are, where the real spiritual people are, it's like you realize you're like a maggot. You're like absolutely nothing. And, and that was starting to hit me. I was like, wow, like I, I, this is way too much for me. I, I'm not like cut out for this level of surrender. But I pushed through. And, and so um, I suffered really hard and like uh, so after a few months in the ashram um we started doing the gardening and it had already been hard for me because we were completely isolated it was a it was a very pure spiritual program there there was no slack in it, it was just like service and sadhana and that was it and so then but then it, a whole other level of struggle came when we started doing the gardening which was, I mean, physically, it was absolutely, I was not used to doing physical labor and it was just like so hard. We would dig out the whole garden beds, all dig them out completely by hand, mix our own soil and throw it back in, in, in the, like the sun started really happening. You know, it started getting really hot at that point. And since I was from Finland, I was not used to that kind of heat. And <laughs> It was so hard for me that I would just go to my yard whenever I could and I would cry my eyes out like, oh, why is it so hard? God, why are you doing this to me? I can't take this anymore. I'd rather be dead. You know, it's so painful. And then I would like wipe my face and I was like, I'm not going to show these guys that I'm so weak. And I would go back there. I'm like, I'm going to be just as tough as these guys. And I would like work my butt off. My hands would be shaking. I'd be all like 
crab red on the head, you know, because of the sun, and then go back in the yard and cry my eyes out, get back on the in the gardens, and that was my sadhana. <laughs> and um, I basically what I was just talking to Archan about this, or she was mentioning it before we started the call that how like she felt like she was in the middle of a river and she could see the the uh, bank on the other side and the bank where she had left off. And she's just figured, I guess I better just swim through this thing. And that that was exactly my my experience. I was like, I know what it means to turn around and go back. I, I know what I'm shooting for. And, and I, there's no point in going back because I have to go through the suffering anyway at some point. So I might as well push through now and then I'm done with it. And I've created myself a samskar that will be, enable me to not have these problems in the, in the future. And I don't necessarily recommend that approach to everybody. Like it's extremely hard and it can be damaging for sure if, if it's too much for you. But I guess I was just at the cusp of being able to do that. And then so I pushed through and I actually was able to do that. But it was extremely hard. I'm not going to lie. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And so, uh, so then I, that's how I went forward. And then one thing that happened that was very meaningful to me was that when one time when I was having one of the hardest, uh, it was one of the hardest days in the ashram so far. And in the evening, me and Chidahari, we were having dinner in the temple kitchen. And we're sitting on the floor and eating these like little packets of like um, ready-made potato mash because that's all we had. <laughs> and and um, I, I asked him like how can you keep doing that like like how do you control your mind and he said something that has stayed with me forever since and he said well when i it, it's really hard for me i meditate on this thing that the alcoholics anonymous they have this slogan and it goes one day at a time stay focused and stay centered and I, that's when it hit me like like i'm in rehab this is what I, like the ashram is spiritual rehab and I'm going through the exact same kind of symptoms. I'm basically going through these massive like heroin withdrawals. And that's why I'm freaking out. There's nothing wrong about me freaking out. It's part of the process. And that's a part of the, the rehab process is that you vomit your guts out <laughs> basically, because that's what you go through in rehab. You get hammered by your, your addiction and there's no way around that if you want to face it head on like if you want to butt heads with your material conditioning you're going to be vomiting your guts out and it's going to suck but there's no way that you're not going to have to do that at some point point. and so then when i got that like right kind of like orientation that that's what i was going through and there's nothing wrong with me per se it really made it so much easier for me and then he said this other thing that was really important for me too he said that another thing that the aa says is that is that I'm not going to be sober for the rest of my life. I'm going to be sober for one day at a time. And then I'm going to be sober the next day and the next day and the next day. And I was like, that's right. I'm not going to be a monk for the rest of my life. It's like, oh, thank God. I'm not going to be a monk for the rest of my life. I'm going to be a monk just for one day and then one day, one day. And that really, you chop this, uh, this massive blob into these small parts. And then you do that small one part at a time. And that really did it for me. And after that, I still suffered like anything, but at least I had this framework that I, it was progressive, right? I wasn't just suffering for no reason. And so I did that for one and a half years and it, uh, it was definitely starting to get easier, but I was still getting hammered. And then at that time, 
we started building the temple in Audaria. And um, that project was really the thing that that brought the focus for me for like service. That, that this idea, Vrindrana had been hammering these points about service to me since I got to Audaria, which I'm like eternally grateful for. She was my, and is my, my guru in a way of, of service attitude and surrender. And she's been extremely important for me in the way of, of understanding the importance of right, the right attitude and how to serve the guru and how to surrender. So I had this Gyan Samskar, so surrendering didn't come naturally for me. And like surrendering, like giving your heart to somebody. I was more like, you know, grit your teeth and like push through with this like renunciation or something. But she really is all about the heart and she, she's really incredible in so many ways. But that, that was one of the best things for me that I got from her in the beginning. And so anyway, so we started building the temple uh, and it was another level of, of difficulty and the, the messiness that Archon said he mentioned or like framed this in, in interview series with because I hated construction. I hated everything. Like I was like an art school student and all that kind of, you know, maintenance stuff or like being the man who, you know, does the, you know, the nail gun and the whatever you know the skill so it was like not me you can ask anybody who knew me before i joined the ashram like Krishangi, <laughs> what i was like back then so so like it was extremely hard for me to do service that was not natural for me but that was one of the things that i learned from brindarania was that you don't do service like the, the you do service as a service, not something that necessarily is something that you enjoy doing, although it's definitely better if you can combine the two. But at that point, it, it was based on the necessity that Gurumaj had a vision and we had very limited sources and we had very limited staff. But we just, we jumped into it because that was the mood back then. We were just like, whatever Gurumaj thought we should do, that was his vision. He was trying to serve his gurus, we'd go for it. And so we did, and we started building the temple when we had the worst heat wave of the recorded history of Mendocino County on. So it was 115 degrees outside. And the construction was of course in direct sunlight. And we, we had trenches for the formation or the foundation of the temple. So we were in the trenches digging out the extra soil. And so in the trenches, it must've been at least 10 degrees hotter because the air was stuck there. And the only thing we survived that was, thank God Chidahari came up with this idea of, of soaking our t-shirts and hats in cold water every 30 minutes. And that's what we would do. And we were moving like sloths. It was so hot that we, we it was kind of like those videos of the space uh, guys in, moon, in the moon, you know? And like, and, but still like after 30 minutes, the t-shirts and hats were like bone dry. And we'd go back to the bathhouse and soak our t-shirts and hats. And so during that time, this one guy, one devotee, Gromach had put out this um, um, call to the congregation to come and help with the temple because we were so, so, so short staffed. That was just two guys while Vrindarania was like running the rest of the ashram, the gardens and the deity worship and cooking and everything with Gromach and Gromach was doing certain things as well. And so this one uh, guy came from Southern California and one devotee came and uh, he was more like an office kind of guy, but he, he probably saw me and he was like, oh, this guy's it's like a practically a skeleton. So I, I won't, shouldn't have anything to worry about. He was a skinny guy too. 
And so he started working with us in the trenches and I was trying to give him a hat. He, he was bald, he was you know, a little older. So he was bald and I tried to give him a hat. And he was like, no, no, I'm fine. Sure enough, after a couple hours, his like head was peeling off practically. And he was like shaking in the shade and drinking water. And, and, but he had the same kind of like stubbornness in that, than I did. And so he was just like, didn't care. And he kept pushing himself. And then the next day he showed up a little later and he was a little more quiet. And then the third day he was very quiet and showed up very late. And then on the morning of the fourth day, he was supposed to stay for a week. That was the plan. And then we were having breakfast on the fourth day and he came and he was very quiet. And then all of a sudden he, his eyes started welling up. He said, I have to leave. And we were like, oh, no, you don't. We were just like trying to say, like, you don't have to work. You can just come and just stay and hang out and chant. But he, was, he cut us off. He was like, no, I have to leave. <laughs> and then he was gone the same morning. And I felt terrible about the thing, of course. But, but what it really did to me was that I realized that I had become so much tougher. Because in the beginning, I was like, I want to be like Rindran and Chidahari because they were tough as nails. And then all of a sudden, I hadn't, didn't have anybody to compare myself to other than Vrindran and Chidahari. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes who was, you know, physically pretty fit and everything. And he couldn't even stay for a week, although he knew he was going to go back to his, you know, peaceful, you know, convenient, comfortable life in Southern California. And he couldn't stay for a week. And I was like, how oh, dang, like I've been doing this for like one and a half years. So I, I finally like realized, like, I can actually do this if I just keep going. And it was such an amazing like feeling for me, like such a feeling of victory, like, man, like I'm actually tough enough. I was just some art school guy. I was not, I was not tough by nature. And then him giving up so fast was really gave me so much like this like sense of empowerment. And then from then on the temple project kind of like subsumed my focus. Like it, it was so useful for me to have like one massive devotional project that was so intense and big and had time limits like deadlines that I could not think about anything else it was so all-consuming for the ashram that that it just completely like grabbed my focus and it was extremely useful for me and so then me and Chidahari we just went at it I mean we did we just worked these like crazy days which is like in retrospect just nuts but but we had to sort of do it like that because the thing was that we knew the rains were coming and we had to get the, it was uh, July when we started the construction from nothing and we had to have the structure up and the roof on top of it by uh, November when the rains would come <laughs> for two guys. And it's a hundred, uh, 1500 square foot building with a lot of details. So then later on in the summer, we realized we're totally running out of time. And, and we started doing these like 12 hour days. And so this was another level of that, uh, that um, messiness and the, the surrender that had to come for us to be able to finish the temple. Um, so we started doing these 12 hour days, seven days a week for two months. And so we would wake up, chant our rounds, get on the construction site at seven o'clock in the morning, and then work until seven in the evening when it was too dark to, to nail, nail or to do anything, to use the skill saw. And we did that every single day for two months. And we were so exhausted that like, 
I don't remember ever being that exhausted. It was just beyond exhausted. Like, and then of course, what happens when you're that exhausted, your mind starts giving you trouble. And so there started being all this tension between us. And uh, I mean, it almost came to blows a couple of times. I'm not going to go into details about that. But if we want to talk about messiness, that would have been pretty messy if we would have actually like duked it out on the, the roof of the temple construction. <laughs> anyway, that, it got really intense. And but we got it done. And then you can imagine what it felt like after six months or five months of, of that level of intensity. We have the roof on. And the drops start hitting, the raindrops start hitting the roof. Like, I think it was two days after we got the final panels on. And then it was like, oh, like, you know, it was such a relief. Like, we were just able to slow down, start working on the insides of the temple. And uh, things, obviously, the tensions totally, like, eased out. And it was all good from there on. And uh, I'm totally running out of time here. So I don't know what I should say more about that but i guess i'm going to start, uh, jump a little forward um just wanted uh, to interject how how wonderful it is to hear your story like this it's just <laughs> i relate so much to it i can't even believe how many things in this are like oh my god I, different service and different but some so relatable so i'm it's really exciting to hear. Yeah, I guess that's what it is like with devotees who went for the full, because Guru Maharaj's mission at that time, it was really like an, almost like an extension of, of Prabhupada's earlier mission, the way it was back then, like just full surrender and you just like throw everything at it. And so devotees, I think who have gone through that, there's really this camaraderie. Like, for example, like I, um, I don't, when Chidahari left ashram, I didn't have like a lot to do with him personally for all these years. But every time I meet him, there's just this bond that you can't have otherwise, like because we went through such insanely intense times. It's the same thing with Maya Porchandra, who I uh, was in Madhuvan with pioneering through, through the first uh, rainy season, which was even much more intense than what it was in Audarya. So with those two devotees, and of course, obviously Vrindarania, because we went through so much with her. Oh, I went through so much with her. There's this like very special bond that only comes from, from that kind of struggle and pushing through these like insurmountable obstacles. Yeah, yeah, so much, so much empowerment actually comes from, you know, that kind of surrender and it, it's, yeah. It, it, the benefits and the and the gems that we receive as a result of having been, you know, for almost forcibly um, placed into situations where we had to surrender. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was do or die. I mean, really, I to totally relate to that. There, there was exactly. no going back, no going back. And the only way was to go forward. And yeah, so. But one thing I should be, I should say in, uh, in the name of honesty is that you do also pay a price for that kind of surrender. Uh, you, you pay, like I still, my lower back is still messed up yeah. and I broke it when I was building the temple when we were on a marathon and you also pay for it psychologically because it's not like, if you look at the material psychology of a human, it's not natural to push yourself that much. So in that way, you kind of do burn your body and your mind for service. And it, it, it has to be your decision if you want to do that or not. Nobody should be forced to do that. 
But if you decide to go for the full thing, you are going to pay for it. There are going to be consequences. But the way I look at it is like, okay, I've done that now. And I look back. And if, I, if somebody asks me like, well, you kind of, you're a little damaged, Kuronista. Do you think you do things differently if, <laughs> if uh, you had a choice? I'd say absolutely not. I would never do anything differently. I would do it exactly. Well, maybe not exactly, but the, the main things I would do exactly the same. I would still surrender. I would still do all this stuff. And the thing is, you're going to pay whatever you do in life. There's a price for it. If you have kids, your body is going to get weaker. It's, you know, there's consequences from everything. So then the question becomes like, what do you want to pay the consequences for? So like this idea that material life could, and you know, it can be a lot easier psychologically and, and, and uh, physically, but we do pay that price, whatever our choices are. So that's how I look at it, that I, I would not change a thing because of that. Um, so what would you like to jump to since we, we only have a few more minutes before? Right. Uh, oh man, there's so much I could be talking about. Um, we might have to have I a guess, part two with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I, I'll say one thing. I, I kind of had like these three devotional explosions in my life. And of course, the first and second were uh, connecting with the devotees through Prabhupada's books. And the second was meeting Guru Maharaj. Uh, but the third one was absolutely going to Vrindavan. That just blew my mind in the exact same way. And it was so interesting because the, my first connection with devotees came through uh, books. My second connection came through personal association with the sadhu. And my third came through the Dham. And... Uh, it was so incredible. Like when we came to Vrindavan and I didn't have any, like, I'm not like a sentimental person. So I wasn't like expecting that I was going to see Krishna walking around with the cowherd voice on the street of, you know, Vrindakuncha or something. But uh, so I didn't have like these like pre expectations of having some intense spiritual experiences or something. But so then we came to Vrindavan in the middle of the night, um, uh, there was Guru Maharaj, Rindarania, and a bunch of other devotees from California in the in the car, and so we stepped out of the car. I stepped out of the car to the cobblestone pavement of in front of Rindakunj, and the, the second I stepped out of the car, there's like this that, this frequency that felt like so familiar. It was the same frequency that I got from Prabhupada's books and from meeting Guru Maharaj, and it was like everywhere instead of just coming from that one point. And it was like overwhelming to me that there was a place on earth that was kind of like a different creation. Like it did not feel like a material uh, location. And then that feeling just like got more and more intense because we had this amazing two, two week, um, um, uh, what do you call it? A retreat with like 50 devotees from all over the world. And so, I mean, it was just like the spiritual world. We would have a morning program, a class, Prashad, another Guru Mahesh would take us around to all these amazing Lila Stalis and all these like Samadhis and stuff and talk about and give us the right perception of the whole thing, conception. And then we'd have another talk in the evening, Prashad, you'd constantly be in the association of devotees. And then the Vrindavan hum was like all around you. And I was just completely like enveloped in this like spiritual vibration. That's how it felt. Excuse me. And, 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 it la and, I, and I pushed myself 
harder than I'd ever pushed that far. It was like, I slept like three hours because there was so much to do and I was running and I had dysentery and the whole thing, but I kept running the whole two weeks because I just wanted to stay in that, that mindset or that, that absorption of that Rindav mood. And I knew that the way to stay in that was to serve Guru Maharaj as hard as I could. And he needed a lot of service at that time. And then Vrindarani, of course, was constantly like, she was like, especially at that point, she'd become my like spiritual mentor. So mentor. So she was like keeping me on track and, and I was running like mad. And it was the most absorbing devotional two weeks I've ever had by far. But the thing was, again, you pay for that. So then by the end of it, we went to New Delhi and we uh, went to like a hotel to wait for our flight for the next day. And I saw, I got to the, um, the hotel room and I just crashed in bed with all my clothes on, my jacket, on, my hat on. And I slept for like four or five hours straight. It was kind of like blanking out in that airplane when I was coming to California. I was just completely out because I was so exhausted, which I hadn't even noticed because it was so absorbing. And so I guess that I'll leave you guys with that because Brindavan was like the, the third explosion that really just kept like hammering on the point that this is not some made up thing like this Krishna consciousness that whatever the current is that is coming down through this certain medium mediums and what Guru Maharaj embodies and what Prabhupada embodies and what Brindavan embodies, it's a real thing and it has a real effect on you. And so I'm just going to stop there and yeah that's it <laughs> uh, yeah so that's that's really beautiful and yeah i mean it's different different devotees have different paths and um some of us have the more yeah intense um early early days and and damage to our physical body but i you know i wouldn't like you said i wouldn't trade it in if i could go back and I mean, I did a lot of the damage to myself too because of the diet and just overeating sweets and you know those kind of things <laughs> resulted in some health, major health challenges. But yeah, just the marathon mood that we all had. But you know, it's die to live. I mean, I, I yeah. totally understand that that idea, and it's not everybody's path, but somehow Krishna put you in that and and you have gained great spiritual benefit from it and become a true sadhaka hero so i i anti-hero <laughs> what was that anti-hero anti-hero anti <laughs> it was just really inspiring for me and i i would like mm -hmm. to see if anybody on the call would have a question any questions for Guru Nishta? Um, I know when I don't I don't have a question but I just really love that that was so wonderful and yeah but, but I didn't have as good consciousness as you, <laughs> unfortunately. I think I was just, uh, you know, Thank you so much. <laughs> Need to mute Mahara. Yeah. Any, anybody have, have a question? Anyone else want to ask something?
Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Maribo, Kishore. Um, I'm wondering how um, the period um, or the how you were able to transition those kind of from those intense, powerful moments or periods into more um, steady, regular sadhana uh, without becoming complacent um, in kind of like how to how to keep that if it's possible to keep that intensity outside of those intense periods mm. yeah i don't think it is uh, at this level i i think it really is not uh, and then maybe if you expect it to be able that you're able to do that then it's so disappointing that you might get discouraged that's what I would say. Um, I, I do remember like, for example, we had this um, East Coast tour with Guru Maharaj. He went to North Carolina for a week and then to uh, the New York area for another week. And it was amazing. It was so exciting for that whole two weeks. And then when I came back to Audaria, and this is, I, I think I've heard it's a common thing for especially temple devotees. So I came back to Audaria and it was back to like pooping, uh, scooping poop and, you know, like brushing the toilets. It was just like, it was really hard to get back to, you know what it's like, right? When you have like a really good festival, for example, that lasts for a long time. And then you're supposed to, after that, go back to the everyday, uh, real like surrender, you know, hands in the mud kind of situation. It's really tough. But I, I really don't think that you can main, maintain that intensity. Like, say, like if I would have tried to maintain the intensity that I felt in Vrindavan, I would have absolutely burnt myself down out, for sure, because you, it's not maintainable. And then the moments when I had some really strong, strong um, experiences with chanting or something like that, it's just we're not at the level where we can actually maintain that. And I don't think we should even try to. Because then that that's just it's so disappointing. Yeah, good question and good answer. Yeah, very good. It's a really good answer too. And that, yeah, that's like Krishna's giving us a little, the coming attractions, like Gumaraj often says that those peak kind of peak experiences and that's, you know, just to show us what our life will be one day all the time. But yeah, mm -hmm. they're not, it's, it'll come and it'll go. And yeah, some, and sometimes, devotees get do get discouraged because they have those peak experiences and then that's what they want all the time but yeah mm -hmm. it's yeah we can't be uh living for that that's for sure yeah in a way you could also say that wanting the peak experiences is a form of sense enjoyment because you're 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 looking for the bliss instead of looking for service so that should always be there as well i think but of course it it would be nice if we were extremely uh inspired by our service all the time by getting that taste of course that's what, what we want but like just as long as the taste obviously it's a simple point but as long as the taste doesn't become the main thing that we're after right and certainly i think that you know we can the taste inspires us to do things that are favorable for yeah. krishna consciousness and to avoid things that are unfavorable and and we do see that when we're you know really chanting with 
you know, as much focus and attention as possible, and we're doing our service with as much love as we can, that, that that's when those moments will come. I, I mean, not that we, we or that we're working just to do, like you said, we're doing it for mm -hmm. service and the attitude has to be, yeah, the more that we, we don't want the taste, the more it comes actually when we're, it's so many paradoxes in this, in this uh, process. Huh? Yeah, I do remember I one more story. The first time I was in North Carolina at your place, remember uh, 2005, I'd been yeah. in the ashram only for like four months or something. And so I remember asking this question to Guru Maharaj. I, it was something like, well, you know, since we're supposed to serve and be focused on service, is it actually better for us to do service that we really dislike? And all the older devotees in the room just like burst out laughing. <laughs> it, was a, it was a funny, funny moment because they felt like, oh my God, this guy's so fanatical, you know. <laughs> but it did end up kind of being like that in a lot of ways. For pretty much my whole brahmachari life, I was doing the kind of service that did not come to me naturally. And it, I think it's another one of those. I don't use this term too much, but in this connection, I think it's okay. It was kind of like, Krishna was kind of like, putting me in that situation to test me if I if I was doing my service for the right motivation because my natural tendency I have that gyan samskar so I'm into like chanting or meditation and and studying and that kind of thing and of course the art artistic creative side I wasn't really doing almost any of that I was drawing the harmonist comics like in the middle of like in the evenings after my service when I was about to fall asleep I was drawing my comics because that was the only time I had for it but other than that, I didn't really have the kind of service as much that was natural for me. And, and But it was extremely useful to learn to appreciate the, the service itself instead of the form that it comes in. And it was really just based on the necessity of the moment. Yes, really, really good point. And I think, I mean, I had a, an experience early on. I think we were talking before, the, before we started and... Um, how discombobulated we be, we were in the beginning, and like just just the, uh, having to recalibrate our whole nervous system and everything when you become a devotee. And the only service I could do, honestly, the first like month I was a devotee was clean the bathroom, and it would take me like so long to do it. I mean, I had been in graduate school; I was pretty competent, and then I just it was just unbelievable to me, but. I had, did have this really transcendent experience cleaning the bathroom, which stuck with me to this day of the absolute nature of service. And just, mm. it, it was just mind blowing, you know, just that spiritual energy that you're talking about, that you, you know, the experience in Vrindavan and getting yeah. the book that happened in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the beauty and the messiness right there. Huh? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And I was like, wow, this is, I was quite grateful for that um, little vision. That's amazing. So, yeah, so. yeah, I love yeah it. one thing about that too, like when I, I, I'd been involved with music for like years and years, that was my, that was like the hub of my material existence was, I was like a band guy, you know, but then I got to Audaria and Guru Mahesh wanted to, me to learn to play the Mridanga. And it's the same kind of thing, like, because I, this there's this huge like kind of like 
um, fraction, or what's the word, fracture between your material identity and the spiritual identity that's just budding that you try to like, kind of like cultivate. I could not get into playing the Merdanga, although I was a drummer, you know, I started when I was 12 and I got into the band stuff, I was a drummer. So that should have been like the most natural thing for me to play the Merdanga. Because, but because the drumming was not in the context of me expressing myself as a drummer, it, I had no taste for it. And actually it was extremely hard for me to learn to play it. And it was such, such an incredible experience that the thing that like informed my childhood and youth, I couldn't do in the devotional context because I didn't have the right service at it. Yeah, and so much of the, those, you know, so, so many of the situations that Krishna puts us in are just to help us to mm -hmm. be able to have that service attitude. And um, yeah, it's such a, it, yeah, it's the uh, ego effacing and, you know, stripping material, stripping and attachments yeah. being taken away. and. The anxiety that you, I, I, that, that, I mean, I had identical like panic attack after I, mm -hmm. I came to the ashram and I, I was like, I knew I had to be there. I knew it's what I needed to do, yeah. but the, the panic attack that it was actually turned into a little fire where I felt I was being consumed in this fire. And the only thing that would make the fire go out was for me to say, okay, Krishna, I'll stay. I'm not going to go anywhere. So yeah, it's, it, it's not an easy, but, but Krishna somehow, you know, I think, yeah, that he, he, he drags it. Not everybody. I guess we would be grateful that somehow we got dragged into it. All of us that are right. <laughs> and then, us go. yeah, absolutely. And then one th more thing that came to my mind from that is that that. But then, so I had like these extremely intense, long periods of of service that I was right at the brink of snapping. But then all of a sudden, I got a there was a like a windfall, or some something that was just all of a sudden like wow, things were working great. And I got that little breather. It's like, you know, Krishna put, took my head like above the, you know, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and then back down and then like, oh, I'm like gasping for air. And then again, he lifts it up just to get enough air to go down again. I mean, and, and it is extremely purifying. And I'm, I guess that it's hard to like think like, what is Krishna like? What is his plan? You know, what, why does the system work like this? It seems very brutal from the Sadhaka's point of view. Like, why does it have to be so hard? was have to be so brutal like that but the thing is like there is clearly some kind of pattern because so many devotees who have really tried to surrender they have the exact same experiences and so there clearly is a system the way it works and then you're just trying to be kind of i guess that's part of the surrender that you don't try to figure it out by with your mind so that you can avoid the bad times and take the good times you can't calculate it's yeah. just you try to surrender and then you have to sort of take whatever comes although it's very unpleasant in a lot of ways yeah and i think that's the, the one of the gifts of doing these interviews is so that you know i mean i've heard devotees say things like i feel like krishna's punishing me i think feel like this is you know he krishna doesn't like me i mean i had a client last week that would have this whole litany like that and but it's it's just the opposite i mean it's krishna is no he sees the whole big picture and he's he's you know it's like 
doing some kind of you know spiritual surgery on us you know removing all these 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 material parts of us and because we're attached it feels you know it's so painful because of our attachment and right it's so it's just yeah it's really um it's such a gift and and so to hear that you know just like the hero's journey. I mean, every hero becomes great because of the adversity he goes through. And so Pain, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, the more of that there is, the more, you know, in the end, he, the greatness comes out. And so sadhikas are just, that's where we're on a hero's journey. It's a, it mm-hmm. is a very special hero's journey. And we have the, and what we're getting, you know, is so far greater than what, you know, Harry Potter gets at the end of, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I never read Harry Potter, but I'm sure that follows the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey kind of thing. Yeah. What we get, I mean, we're getting eternal life, no more suffering, the suffering is over. So we, we have this one, you know, this life, or maybe three more lives, you know, whatever, very short little time frame of, you know, having to go through the the mill to you know but then yeah. it's finished it's finished eternally we'll just be in that spiritual energy living in it you know breathing it all the time mm-hmm. so yeah one uh, thing that came to mind when you said about your client saying that wondering if krishna is punishing her or him i always loved that one uh, example that Prabhupada used to give that like when a baby is having you know you feed milk to it or her him and then he starts having like stomach problems and then you you hit it on the back you know and so like like that's really what it is like we have this extremely like limited frame of reference of what's good and what's bad and what's what's good for us and what's bad for us and so like then it's like oh krishna is punishing me but maybe he has you you on his shoulder and he's like patting that milk to come out or whatever he's trying to make you puke you know to get that stuff out of you I would, so like it's it's really really de- detrimental in some ways to try to speculate what krishna is trying to do with us like why is he making us suffer like obviously if we trust the, the fact that that krishna is the embodiment of like mercy and goodness and all these qualities like this amazing like embodiment of everything that is actually good why would he punish us i mean it's uh, there's there's no room for that kind of thing yeah it's it and yeah everything i mean to actually be able to see if we develop that vision that everything that's happening is it's just perfect for what i need and um and it's love it's done with the utmost love i mean for the sadhaka and then in, in the in the for the siddhas too the siddhas go through their their mm. what looks kind of messy too <laughs> have their messiness but it's it's always to increase the love and it's never i mean it's it's an eternal never-ending process so yeah so even in the spiritual world we're going to have the messiness so so put your seatbelts on we're <laughs> We're, we're in this forever now. <laughs> anyway, Gurnish, I just thank you so much. That was okay. delightful, just totally delightful um, interview. Likewise. And, and I didn't have to do much, which was great. <laughs> <laughs>
So wait, are you trying to avoid avoid service there? <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm definitely a service avoider. <laughs> so um, next week, who do we have? Is it Mahara next week? Yeah, Mahara's next week. So that's going to be that'll be a, a, a I'm sure an exciting um, interview. I've known Mahara for many years and watched her, the messiness and the beauty of her, her life. So I'm, I'm excited to have her be on. And um, yeah, and we have some other nice devotees coming on next month too. We have Madan Gopal and Sakirati. And I don't know, I haven't heard from Kishore Krishna yet. He was I'm, I'm expecting, I hope you got my email. Did you? You didn't get my emails? <laughs> no, you're, are you serious? You, you don't get email. I've sent uh, you. I'm not lying. I, I didn't get any email. Maybe it's in my spam. Oh man, well, I'm glad I asked you. I just thought, man, you're just like really avoiding me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I have a question. Can I ask a question or is it too late? Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I have two questions. One for Guru Nishta and one for Archana Siddhi. And uh, Guru Nishta, I would uh, like to know if you have um, a kind of goal that of course we, we talk about service and everything, but in a level of consciousness, like in this life, if you have a goal mm. or you think about something. Yeah, that's really a, an, a cool way of looking at it, like kind of not just randomly try to go forward, but have some kind of like intermediate goals. Um, Guru Mach used to say um, when we were younger Brahmacharis that it's good to try to shoot for Nishta. And that, that in itself is like a high level. And so I, I've like studied the different levels and, and kind of like in the light of thinking about where I'm at myself and even Nishta seems like a, an extremely high level that you would be at that level of purity where you're not really pulled by anything anymore and you're just fully focused so i would definitely say that's what i'm shooting for but i i don't know if i'm going to be there but it doesn't really matter in some ways that that it's it's a nice interim goal and so i'd say let's go for nishta guru nishta <laughs> right <laughs> thank you thank you thank you and uh, I was wondering, Achana Siddhi, if someone could interview you one day in your series. Actually, Martin <laughs> Gopal said he would like to do it. So yeah, I don't know if he, if he was serious about that, but maybe we can make yeah. that. Okay. That's a great idea. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be fun. I would, I would like that. Although I keep share, I share a little bit here and there with all all the interviews. So probably everything that I would say will have come out by that time. So maybe I don't need to be interviewed. <laughs> See, I bet there's so many things that would come out. We should definitely do. Sounds good. <laughs> all right. Well, I um, yeah, the the series has been really enlivening for me. And um, just love getting to know all of you more. I mean, I had Gurunishta at my house for a week or a few, yeah, I guess about a week. And I was always asking him questions, but he was pretty shy back then. 
you know what? <laughs> so yeah, I've I've been fully Americanized by now. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, I'd been in the, at her house just for a couple of days, and Karnamrita came up to me, and he he grabbed me like this around my uh, neck and started rubbing my chest. He was like, "How are you doing, buddy?" I was like, "Whoa." <laughs> <laughs> for a fin that was like just serious like breaching of uh, personal space but i actually really ended up appreciating it karna was just like so warm like that it was so wonderful nice yeah well it was like that first devotee that you met that was on the yeah, bike yeah i got to well, that's your funny. bike <laughs> yeah the really cool little detail is that his name is agathira and that's like a total Sakyara's name. And I can just see he's like from the Madhu Mangal group. He's this like chubby, happy guy, you know, perfect fit. Stay away from those, those Sakyarats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll um, Kishore, look for an email. I'm going to resend it um, again. And hopefully, if you don't hear, if you don't get an email, then write me back because something's wrong. I've said, yeah, something's wrong. So check your spam, check your whatever. Okay. Jai, Hare Krishna. We'll see everybody soon. No, but you don't.